You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Hereski-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. Later on the program, the 4th Street Festival of the Arts and Crafts will take place over Labor Day weekend. WFHB News spoke with President of the Festival Committee, Sidney Bolin, about what the festival will entail. More coming up during today's headlines. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Buskirk Chumley Theater will require a vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test ahead of its fall season. We spoke with the executive director, Jonah Chrismore, about what led to that decision. But first, Emily McCoy has your State House Roundup. WFHB. This is the State House Roundup for Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. I'm Emily McCoy. On Tuesday this week, Mark Figg discussed in an interview the ongoing annexation process in Monroe County and its correlation with housing development. Figg served as a chairman of the Bloomington Economic Development Incorporation in 2019 and 2020. Fig also partook in the committee that overlooked the recent housing study completed in 2020. According to Fig, the outcome of the housing study showed strong housing scarcity that has caused housing prices to increase. Fig commented that the annexation of Monroe County will be beneficial to the city's housing development in the long run by decreasing housing scarcity. The newly annexation areas would be held under the city's recent Unified Development Ordinance, which looks into land use in Bloomington City development. Fig continued on to address concerns on rising taxes from county residents living in the proposed annexation zones, advising that while there will be a tax increase, the long-term benefit of that would be a decrease in housing scarcity and housing prices overall allowing for more urban economic development in the county. Our board of Bloomington Economic Development Corporation actually made housing scarcity our number one economic development impediment. (laughs) So, and that's been over the last couple of years, which we've never had worried about that. It's always about job creation and infrastructure and land for, you know, employers and, you you know, zoning to match that. It's all about housing now. That's all for the State House Roundup. For WFHB News, I'm Emily McCoy. The Monroe County Board of Zoning Appeals considered granting a variance retroactively. At the September 1st meeting, County Planner Anna Krasoulis discussed a slope variance at South Oak Ridge Drive. 
She pointed out that the petitioner had already started working on the land and that the petitioner was pushing the debris off of their property. So one of the things on the west side of the house is a ravine that's adjacent to them. It's mostly off their property, um, but a lot of the debris that was cleared was pushed into this ravine. Board member Skip Daly wondered why staff had presented a variance instead of moving to enforcement. He questioned Chrysoulis on why the planning department had not gone straight to mediation. Why prior to coming to the board did you not work out a, that middle ground remediation with the, um, with yeah, the petitioner? Absolutely. A variance is an option. So the variance is, hey, can we keep it this way? That's the request. Can we have it exactly how it is? And if not, we go into enforcement. Daly suggested the board continue the variance for 30 days to give the petitioner time to create a remediation plan. Board member Margaret Clemens commented, commented on the importance of discouraging actions like this from happening again. She added to her surprise that someone would take these actions without consulting the county first. Boy, that that looks like drastic action that was taken without any consideration for county approval. That I don't know how someone how someone does that, you know, without thinking yeah. you better check with the office. You know, I just don't understand that. You know, it just doesn't make common sense to me. An initial vote to continue the variance failed. Clemens moved to deny the request along staff recommendations. This motion passed three to two, with board members Skip Daly and Bernie Gutierrez dissenting. The 4th Street Art Festival will return this weekend after its cancellation last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The event will run from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Saturday and 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, featuring 80 artists working in a wide range of mediums. Sydney Bolam, president of the 4th Street Arts Festival Committee, described the festival's offerings this year. This year is our 45th year. Um, last year, we actually had a virtual show because of COVID. And this year, even though we're trying to keep the spirit the same, we've definitely taken some steps to make it a little bit more COVID sensitive um, so that we could actually have an in-person show. But um, we host artists from all over the country and some we do have an occasional international artist. Oh, there's all kinds of wonderful mediums that people use to express themselves. I mean, we're going to have a very good selection of fiber art and pottery, um, beautiful glasswork and printmaking, painting, um, just the usual things you've come to expect. We've done the same judging process that we've always done. So even though it's less artists, um, we really pride ourselves in more quality than quantity. That was our only regret was we couldn't do more this year because we've just had such you know, wonderful artists in the past. And we really hope to be able to get back up to our old numbers next year with any luck. So, and lots of jewelry, lots and lots of beautiful jewelry of all different kinds. There's enamel work and gold and silver, gemstones, just all kinds of wonderful things. The festival will return with new measures in place to protect against the transmission of COVID-19. Normally in a regular year in the past, we have around 120 artists um, this year, we did some math and figured out that if we wanted to have approximately 10 feet between each booth, um, we needed to have more like 80 artists. So this year, we have only 80 artists. 
Um, we've done a few other things. Like normally we have a whole music stage and music lineup and we tend to be really inner, like, um, interspersed with a lot of musicians, you know, artists and musicians go a lot in the same circles. So we, we really love them. Um, but we decided this year it would be in our best interest to discourage a lot of standing around in one place. So we decided to do away with the music stage, hopefully for just this year. But, um, but yeah. The other things we did was normally we have um, children's activities in the Lotus tent. And this year we're doing a takeaway, like they are, they are organizing a takeaway activity so that kids can take the, whatever they're doing and take it home to work on so that that way unvaccinated kids won't be congregating and hanging out to do an activity. Like they can take it and continue to walk around and enjoy it at home. So, and we're also encouraging um, people wear masks where they can't social distance. And also we have been working very thankfully with um, Cardinal Spirits. They've been very generous with hand sanitizers for our artists and volunteers. The past year has been a difficult one for artists, according to Bolum, because of the absence of art fairs and public shows. I mean, most of these artists connect with their communities through either galleries, art fairs, and these are people that have been doing it their whole lives. These aren't um, younger generations of artists who have jumped right into online sales, such as like Etsy or having an e-commerce style website. So a lot of these artists had their whole means of income just taken away from them over the last two years. And so um, we've seen some changes. A lot of people retired from doing art fairs just because, you know, you can't have a whole year off if that's your main income. And a lot of other artists decided to step away from that and to do more things with online sales. So that also meant that we had a lot of our longtime committee members retire from our organization. So um, it's made for a lot of changes. And we see that in almost every um, sort of agency we work with. So like when we contacted, you know, the police or the city, there's a lot of turnover in those groups also. So there's a lot of new faces. And um, we're, you know, we're reevaluating how best to serve our artists so that they can continue to have an income, but do it safely. So, but it's really affected people. Bolum encouraged Bloomington residents to support local art organizations as artists recover from income shortages incurred during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm a member of multiple different arts organizations, and every art organization that I'm a part of is in need of people to commit to participating to help continue to make those happen in the future. So if you have an art event that you love, whether it's Lotus or the 4th Street Festival or any of the others that you might spend time, you know, enjoying, I really encourage people to either volunteer or see other ways that they can become involved, like maybe joining a board. Um, I don't know a single arts organization that hasn't had uh, a lot of people stepping back just because of how difficult the last year or two years was. So I think I speak for all arts organizations when I say we, we need new people, we need new blood, and we need people who are passionate and enthusiastic and have a love for this. For more information on the upcoming Arts Festival, visit fourthstreet.org. The Buzzkirk Chumley Theater announced this week that it will require COVID-19 vaccinations or a negative COVID-19 test for all of its shows. In a press release, a spokesperson said that safety remains a priority for Bloomington's community theater. Executive Director Jonah Chrismore explained what led to the decision. 
for us specifically, it came from a few different, you know, angles that we were working. We recently surveyed our audiences, our patrons, and it overwhelmingly showed support for a vaccine requirements or negative COVID tests. You know, our respondents that came to about over 80% were in favor of that from our patrons. Those are our regular ticket buyers. Also, artists who are on tour right now, you know, it kind of started in as this gentle kind of trickle of, you know, a request here and there if we could do it. And then before you know it, every artist was requiring it. So it just became a matter of practicality as well that all the artists are requiring it. So, it, you know, to to create some semblance of, of just trying to keep uh, some stability, we decided that the whole season should have COVID vaccine or negative COVID test along with, with your ticket purchase when you come in to see an event here at the BCT. So, and, you know, of course, all in all, it's also, you know, what we feel is like the best way to ensure that we can keep our community as safe as we possibly can while still being able to do what we do, which is have, you know, gatherings of, of, of concert goers and music fans. Early on in the pandemic, many shows were canceled due to COVID-19. Meanwhile, this affected touring artists, the venue, and livelihood of theater staff. Crismore touched on the push and pull of wanting to remain open while trying to protect theater goers. Safety is our first priority always. You know, we want to make sure that that when we have events here that people remain safe and they remain healthy. You know, one strategy that has been a great asset is the vaccine masking, which our Monroe County um, requires, is another great thing. So when we marry those two things together, along with social distancing when possible with um, enhanced cleaning. We're doing everything we can to create an experience where the concert can still happen. We're keeping our staff safe. We're keeping the artists safe. And most of all, we're keeping our community safe while we're still able to fulfill the mission of our organization, which is to fill the, uh, you know, the historic bus Kirk Conley stage with programming throughout the year and also help, you know, we're talking about livelihood of our theater staff, which is very, very important, but, you know, the, livelihood of our artists is very, very important. And many of our artists, this is how they make their living. And, you know, it's just, just is a financial certainty that many of them would not be able to continue on with their careers as being an artist if they did not go on tour this season. Buskirk Chumley is the first venue of its size to enact this policy. Grismore says he believes it will soon become the industry standard. I believe it's the only way forward, at least for the foreseeable future you know, to do this in the safe, responsible manner. And you're seeing it, you know, the coasts, both East and West Coast had already started to require it, while Palooza and Chicago started to require it. And shortly after that, several other venues in Chicago started to require it. Um, now venues in Indianapolis are requiring it. I feel like it's just a matter of time before this is just what the industry standard is. And it's 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 going to be much stranger to go to a place that they don't require it than they, than they do. All in all, Chris Moore says he doesn't want to face another shutdown. He believes requiring vaccination or a negative test along with the mask mandate would help provide the safest theater experience. Well, you know, we don't want another shutdown to happen. You know, 
we're very happy and very lucky that we're in Monroe County where people are taking the, you know, are taking the pandemic seriously and they are doing everything they can to keep themselves and those around them safe. But we just don't know what the future would hold for, for the performing arts in not just Bloomington and Indiana, but, you know, the whole region and, you know, like I say, even on a national scale, if, you know, if shutdowns started to occur again. So we feel that, you know, Getting vaccinated is one of the, you know, one of the fast tracks to being able to have live concerts in a safe and responsible manner again. Adhering to the masking mandates is another thing you can do to keep everybody safe. And ultimately, you know, we want to keep this communal experience alive. And the only way we can do that is where we're looking out for each other and the members of that community and um, making sure that we're doing everything we can to not spread this very, very infectious disease. Chris Moore went over some of the shows the Buzzkirk has in store for the fall season. Very excited that September 30th, we're going to be having Kenny Wayne Shepherd. He's some, you know, another artist who has been affected by the pandemic and that we originally had him scheduled for August 30th, but a member of his crew had COVID-like symptoms. So, you know, they had to take a break from the, from the tour, but we were able to get them rescheduled later on. So we're still excited to have that show happen. Stephen Page from the Bare Naked Ladies, he's having, you know, going to be playing some of his hits as well as some of his solo work. And we're excited about having him, which is, um, that's on September 22nd, I believe. And then, you know, we have a whole, you know, a whole list of great stuff coming down the pipe. You know, we have Iron and Wine, you know, a very, you know, venerable, um, indie singer songwriter on November 19th. And on September 15th, um, we have Kathleen Edwards, another amazing senior songwriter. So we're really doing everything we can to make sure that the musical arts continue on. Another act that we're very excited about is Kevin James Thornton. He's a actor and comedian. And October 1st, we're going to have him on our stage. He's somebody who's kind of done a one-man show, done several other things. But he kind of got another, his career got a whole new wind when he started going on TikTok and, you know, having these telling these kind of confessional stories about growing up in Evansville, Indiana in the nineties as a as a gay man in a very conservative evangelical environment. And he's just great. I'm very excited to see what kind of stories he tells and how he tells it. And you know, he's somebody who can make you laugh and cry in a, in just a thirty second span and it's he's just an amazing storyteller. To find out more on the upcoming fall schedule, you can visit buzzkirkchumley.org. On August 31st, the Bloomington Board of Public Works approved construction on East 14th Street. According to board member Dana Hank, the entire project will take place from September 23rd, 2021 to August 11th, 2023. The construction will be broken up into four phases. Attorney William Beggs expressed concern in public comment on behalf of his client. He wanted to ensure that his clients, employees, and customers would be able to get in and out of 14th Street and that their trash would be able to be collected. Phase four is the place where we've got um, um, a difference. Um, 4A, obviously, if you look at the MOT, is the most impactful we've uh, to our business, and it comes about at a, at a tough time. And so our request, we've tried to put two alternatives out there, and I guess I want to just make sure neither of them works. One, we suggested, would it be possible to flip uh, 4A and 4B in terms of the sequence in which that work is done. And the second thing um, we we requested or, or tried to 
uh, make work is is there some way that 4a could could happen earlier i guess we don't care about 4b because that does not impact the ability of customers and and staff to get to us but 4a does the board of public works looked to landmark construction to answer his question the representative eric schulte responded saying that he wasn't sure it'd be possible to accommodate them but that they would do their best so as far as the timing um you know obviously if the work on phase one, two A and two B go quicker. I mean, we'd gladly move that up to make that work. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to tell at this point on how things go, but I mean, if we, you know, we get you know, the first three phases done sooner and obviously we'll do that sooner if we can um, to accommodate. Um, as far as like the phasing, you know, obviously we're working from Walnut Street to the east. I mean, our water lines being laid from Walnut Street, you know, we're, we're working west to east. So to kind of hop over a section, um, it just, you know, it's just not kind of typical, um, you know, to run water line to skip a 50 foot section and then go again and then come back to it. Um, I mean, as far as the timing, like I said, if we, for some reason, you know, obviously we want to go as fast as we can, I think it's better for everybody. Um, I mean, if we can move that up, we, we will, we'll try to, um, it's kind of hard to I guess, commit at this time, but. Another public comment asked to clarify when the terracotta apartments would be affected. Schulte answered that the construction near there would take place from October 18th to November 25th. The board motioned to approve the East Street closures 3-0. to zero. Bird and Lime scooters will be discussed at the next meeting. The Monroe County Council had a special work session to continue discussion on Monroe County's job classifications and compensations. At the August 31st work session, Councilmember Eric Spoonmore proposed that the County Council decide whether to adopt the findings from the commissioned Wagoner, Irwin, Scheel, and Associates report for the 2022 budget. County Council Margie Rice cautioned council members to implement salary increases equitably. She said this would avoid situations where employees are upset that they only make a bit more money than employees who work under them. We regularly hear when, let's say, um, a comet category is increased that the their supervisors now are very close in salary to those people they're supervising. So you you must think about the unintended consequences that you might have if you don't implement things equitably across all categories. Highway Director Lisa Ridge spoke against adopting the findings. She said that WIS admitted their report contained errors and that adopting the report as is meant department heads would have to comb through the results and make sure there weren't additional errors. I am not a department head that came forward just to say I'm upset with the outcome of this report. I think it's a great basis. I've been here since day one of 1997 of the original report. Um, We found factual errors in job descriptions. WIS admitted to it on the phone that they had overlooked some of the duties, but you want us to adopt those and then as a department head go through and work through these problems. I find that really time consuming for a department head um, when it's not just that I'm upset, I'm trying to make sure that something is not overlooked. And it was stated in in that day, why would we wanna pass something that we know is incorrect? Council members agreed to budget $1 million for partial implementation of the WIS findings in the 2022 budget. The Monroe County Council will discuss how to spend the budgeted money and what aspects of the WIS findings to adopt at a later date.
Up next, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel covers three environmental headlines in today's environmental news brief. We turn to Weinzapfel for more. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, September 2nd. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Hurricane Ida, now classified as a tropical storm, recently made landfall in Louisiana as a Category 4 hurricane with winds reaching 150 miles per hour. The U.S. Geological Survey has announced that the forces of the winds and the storm stopped and reversed the flow of the Mississippi River. The river's flow went from 2 feet per second south to half a foot per second north. This is an extremely rare occurrence, as the last time it occurred was during Hurricane Katrina. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and other researchers have found that climate change has increased the amount of natural disasters per year and has also increased the intensity, thus making them more deadly. Residents of Tell City, Indiana, living near a former General Electric factory, have recently filed a lawsuit against General Electric citing the effects of the contaminants that the plant released into the environment on the property values and human health in the area. The contaminant, trichloroethylene, was found on 76 properties. Researchers believe that there is a connection between this contaminant and an increase in Parkinson's disease. General Electric has stated that they are fully committed to working with Tell City to complete an assessment of the damage and fix the situation. A federal judge has recently struck down a Trump-era environmental rule that removed federal protections against the pollution of the nation's waterways. The policy had allowed farmers, real estate developers, and others to discharge pollutants such as fertilizers, pesticides, industrial chemicals, and other harmful substances into streams and wetlands. The Biden administration was firmly against this policy due to the possibility of serious environmental harm that would result from a continuation of the Trump-era policy. Environmental groups celebrate the decision as a victory for clean water and scientific integrity. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider, Robert Robinson, Cade Young, and Jake Jacobson in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. The State House Roundup was produced by Emily McCoy. Our environmental news brief was produced by Nathaniel Weinsapple. Our theme music is produced by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for Big Talk with Michael Glab. coming up next on WFHB.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 